Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Nashville, Tennessee to discuss evidence-based medicine for the treatment of ARDS in the era of COVID-19. Uh, yeah, I'm, my name is Todd Rice. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician at Vanderbilt University uh, Medical Center. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Todd. Uh, today we'll be discussing your article that was published online in the April 22nd, 2020 uh, issue of Annals ATS. The paper was uh, titled, In Defense of Evidence-Based Medicine for the Treatment of COVID-19 ARDS. So maybe you could go out and outline the problem for us and state how clinicians have been challenged by the management of ARDS uh, due to COVID-19. Yeah, you know, this manuscript came about from a number of sort of um, novel reports and uh, potential treatment guidelines that sort of were out of the mainstream and in some cases uh, contrary to the evidence that we had. Um, and um, from that, uh, we we um, started talking about, you know, is this a different disease? Should we be doing something different with this disease? Should we be just trying things? Uh, and ultimately, when you you know take a step back and look, um, what we do is we provide you know good critical care, um, doing the things that evidence has shown us uh, improve outcomes and and improve the um, the outcomes for our patients. Uh, and if we do that uh, to the patients uh, and we do it consistently and do it well, um, we can actually end up with reasonably good outcomes. Um, and you know that's true for for this disease too. And so that that sort of belief and feeling uh, is what um, is what kind of prompted the article, um, partly because, you know, you just need an emphasis on, you know, we really do provide good critical care and we should keep doing that, and partly because there was a lot of kind of supposition about, well, maybe this is a different disease, and because of that, maybe we should do things differently and even do some things that are contrary to what the evidence suggests is the right thing to do. So why do you think that has come about? Um, uh, why would we take proven therapies and say, well, let's not use them, let's opt for something new? Is it because of yeah. the fear that people are feeling? Is it because it's a very chaotic environment? Are we trying new therapies for a chaotic situation where we maybe should be just be going to reliable therapies? Yeah, I think I think it's potentially all of that. I think um, it's a chaotic situation. Uh, there's a little bit of hysteria. Uh, patients are unfortunately dying, um, and you know, patients even with the best care that we can provide them, obviously they're critically ill and patients die. But when you see, you know, a huge bolus of patients and patients start dying, and you see more deaths than maybe you've seen um, previously, not necessarily a higher percentage, but just a bigger number, you start thinking, you know, maybe I need to do something different because this isn't working. Uh, and then, I, I, honestly, I think um, at least in my institution, and I think this is true of a lot of institutions, uh, this whole pandemic has really put a big focus on critical care because we've taken care of a lot of these patients uh, or many of these patients. And uh, what happened in my institution is, is that non-critical care people would come to me and say, you're not doing anything. You need to do something. Uh, you know, what are you doing? You're not, you're not treating these patients. Uh, and I, I heard that during the early parts of this pandemic. I heard that a fair amount, and I had to actually say, no, we actually are doing something. We're providing good critical care, the evidence that we know, and that's how these patients 
you know, get better. And we know this from 30 years of studying and um, trials and, you know, figuring out what the, the best thing to do with these patients is. The other interesting part is, is that, uh, you know, I, I've been doing this a long enough time now that I realize that we used to do a lot of things based off of physiology and the patient looked better or the patient, uh, you know, this had to make sense because of physiology. And then it turned out that when we actually rigorously studied it, it either wasn't helpful for the patient or in many situations it was actually harmful for the patients. Um, and, you know, I always go back to kind of the tidal volume. And um, if people go and read the ARDS network low versus high tidal volume uh, article, the patients with high tidal volume had lower respiratory rates. They looked more comfortable. They had better oxygenation and they died more. Um, and, you know, I think that, that, um, sometimes doing things that makes the patient look better in the acute phase isn't necessarily the right treatment and the right action for the patient in the longer phase. So we've got to have the uh, endpoints in mind. So maybe you could uh, give us an example of, uh, I mean, I, I find it pretty intriguing when uh, you say people came to you and felt that these patients weren't receiving treatments. So what kind of therapies were they advocating and what kind of therapies were they actually receiving um, that you knew about in the critical care literature um, that were actually improving their outcomes? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And, and you know, um, what I think happened, and I think it happens that'll happens at a lot of places, is, is that we have protocolized the our treatments for these patients in such a way that we are pretty good at giving them on a regular basis. And it's part of the routine care of our patients in the ICU. And so to the outsider, when we do uh, ventilator protocols or low tidal volume ventilation or lung protective ventilation, or we do daily awakening trials um, and daily breathing trials, and we do, you know, routine uh, prophylaxis for preventing complications and antimicrobial stewardship and all of those sorts of things that we do on a regular basis. Uh, I think that just for people felt like we weren't doing anything for these patients and we weren't doing anything different. Uh, and so, you know, one of the big pushes that I got in my institution was is that a lot of people, uh, non-critical care doctors said, you know, hey, there's elevated cytokines and these patients have cytokine storm and we should treat that with something, IL-6 receptor antagonists, uh, anakinra, uh, steroids, you know, something. Um, and, um, you know, it took, it took a number of conversations and me reminding them that, that, um, you know, many of our patients in the ICU have high cytokines, uh, and, um, that we've tried some of these treatments on those in the past and ultimately, uh, they don't work very well. Um, and, you know, I said, uh, to one of my colleagues, I said, you know, there are probably 500 ways that we can alter the immune response uh, in these patients, and 499 of them are probably wrong for our patient, and there may be one right way, but to think that we're going to just stumble upon that right way um, in this pandemic is is a little, you know, crazy to me to think that, oh, yeah, suddenly the right way is has to be an IL-6 receptor antagonist because, um, you know, their IL-6 levels are high, uh, for example. And so those were a lot of the the kind of conversations um, conversations that that were occurring, uh, at least at my institution. And I think you know Dr. Jans reported that his institution similar stuff um, that was occurring. Uh, I, I think it's hard. I think you know when you get um, hundreds and hundreds of patients and people are dying, and you you know have all the best intentions and you want to do what you can to help these patients and give them the best outcomes and and um, 
you know, a lot of critical care is doing the right things and then providing supportive care and letting the patient get better. And um, that takes some patience, and and that's hard because you want to you want to just do things to try and get the patient better. True, and then we'll we'll, we'll come to uh, how how we address the knowledge gaps uh, later in this podcast. So maybe you could go ahead and explain for us, you know, what is evidence based medicine, and um, why should we use it as a defense against uh, the COVID nineteen and the pandemic? Yeah. So you know, lots. Of, I think lots of people use evidence-based medicine in different ways. But um, for me, evidence-based medicine is is care that we have studied, uh, studied in a rigorous way. Often that's a randomized trial. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but often it's a randomized trial. And that we have, you know, strong, robust data that this is the, this is the right um, treatment modality, whether it's, you know, ventilation strategy, protocols, you know, awakening patients daily, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, that sort of is is based in sort of trials and study and uh, the evidence of of um, having it being rigorously studied. Uh, there's there are some uh, some fringe to this where uh, you can take some of the the evidence and and uh, sort of extrapolate it to a potential other area. And um, that that times will work. Um, or is reasonable um, when when uh, it looks like that evidence might actually pertain to that area, and the evidence is pretty robust in a in a similar other area. Um, and so, you know, the the example that I use that people have have commented on uh, after our article is, well, what about steroids? Steroids, you know, are they is it really evidence based? Not entirely, but people are using steroids. And I think the answer for steroids is, is we don't know. There are data that say, good studies that say eh, it doesn't help. There are good studies in ARDS. There are good studies that say maybe it does help in ARDS. And, you know, there are reasonable data to say that maybe it helps in viral ARDS, and maybe that's that's the right thing to do. So uh, when when people ask me about steroids, I say, you know, I don't think we have an answer for, for yes or no. Uh, I don't think we have real good evidence that it's necessarily harmful. Uh, there is some evidence conflicting, but some evidence that suggests that maybe it's helpful. So if you feel like steroids are something that may help your patient, then, you know, I think that's reasonable and it's not completely out of the evidence-based realm. Um, but but um, some of the things that were being done and were being recommended were clearly studied and shown to be um, shown to cause worse outcomes. Uh, and um, and then we're still being done in this disease with the caveat that well this is an entirely different disease uh, and I think that is is you know not evidence based and it's outside of that that definition. Gotcha. So maybe you could go ahead and uh, uh, inform our audience now what evidence based practices or tools should we be routinely em- uh, employing in managing patients with COVID nineteen with ARDS um, and what is the evidence for them? Yeah, so you know, I think I think there are some that are that are pretty easy. Uh, for me, um, lung protective uh, ventilation, what some people call low tidal volume ventilation, uh, I think is is um, based in evidence. And people have said to me, "Yeah, but we didn't, we haven't studied it in COVID," which uh, is is technically true. At this point, we haven't studied it in COVID, but we've studied it in ARDS with significant benefit, and uh, it's been studied in patients that don't have ARDS a number of times, and uh, although not 100% positive, 
that it was always beneficial. Um, many of those studies show benefit to it, and none of those studies show that higher tidal volumes are, are um, significantly better than, than lung protective and lower tidal volumes. So that one, to me, is sort of the basis of how I provide uh, critical care. And um, in full disclosure, I provide that, that critical care in a protocol, and there's evidence that protocols protocol-driven care in the intensive care unit improves the outcomes of our patients. So we provide that, ventila that ventilation strategy uh, by protocols, um, and we do it in all our patients, not just the ones that have ARDS. That's our ventilation protocol strategy. Uh, I think there are, there are good data and good studies that show that uh, awakening patients on a daily basis and doing spontaneous breathing trials when they meet certain oxygen criteria for potentially being ready to come off the ventilator improves their um, coming off the ventilator faster, gets them out of the ICU faster, and may actually result in improved mortality. So those are those are sort of mainstays of the treatments that uh, we provide to um, critically ill patients. Uh, there are others, such as higher PEEP in patients that have um, P to F ratios that are on the lower side, uh, trying to recruit um, some long doing prone positioning in patients that have um, severe ARDS, uh, based off of PDF ratios. Those, are, again, are all things that, that uh, we routinely uh, provide in an ICU and have been providing for um, the, the patients with COVID-19. Um, then there are uh, other strategies that I think are uh, based in less robust, less strong evidence, but still um, have evidence that suggests that they're good for our patients. And those are things like prophylaxis, uh, antibiotic stewardship, um, you know, um, trying to prevent uh, DVTs um, and uh, um, those sorts of sorts of, of practices, um, and those are sort of the, the what I think are the sort of foundation of critical care and the mainstays of critical care. And um, you know, I think that when we wrote this manuscript, um, part of it was based out of the fact that we were hearing, seeing, and and listening to people recommend. Uh, practices that not only weren't that, but were contrary to sort of those practices. Um, and, you know, I think in the best interest of our patients, we should do the things that, that our studies and data have shown uh, improve their outcomes. So what practices have been performed um, that have actually been shown to, uh, to cause harm to patients um, that uh, patients have been considering in uh, those with COVID-19? Yeah, so you know, I I, I read a number of um, articles, uh, suggestions uh, of people saying that we should, um, because the the compliance does appears to be better than than maybe some patients that we've seen with ARDS, we should be using tidal volumes that are nine, ten, or even higher uh, milliliters per kilogram of predicted body weight. Um, I think that's pretty clear that that's uh, not beneficial and and is actually detrimental to our patients. Um, there was um, uh, a number of, of suggestions, and this is still going around, that we should never intubate these patients because mechanical ventilation kills them. Um, and, you know, although, um, although uh, mechanically ventilating a patient who doesn't need it is probably not good practice, um, there, we've all, I think, seen the patient that uh, uh, desperately needs mechanical ventilation. And, yeah, some of those patients die, but not all of them do, and mechanical ventilation clearly can be life-saving in those patients. Um, you know, initially, the, the recommendation, uh, and this was sort of the recommendation that went through my hospital before we started seeing a lot of patients, was don't use uh, high-flow nasal cannula 
um, on these patients because it's aerosolizing and you'll put your healthcare workers at risk. And so if they need more than six liters of oxygen, just go ahead and intubate them. And we actually never did that. We used high-flow nasal cannula even from the beginning. We thought the data that it was more aerosolizing than regular oxygen or a face mask or any of that was not very good. Uh, and we, we used it. And then now there's some data that says that, that it's not um, um, more aerosolizing than other oxygen deliveries. Uh, and we've had a significant number of patients who we've maintained on high-flow nasal cannula for uh, many days and never, ever intubated them, and then they get over their illness, get better, and come off high-flow nasal cannula and get out of the hospital. Um, and so I think, you know, some of those things, uh, things like that are sort of um, treatment recommendations that were being propagated that weren't necessarily in the best interest of any of these patients. Okay. So how would you combat those practices? I mean, uh, we've had uh, a lot of recommendations or anecdotal reports with people um, uh, reporting uh, new practices. How do you combat that and say, you know what, that isn't evidence-based and we need to stick with yeah. uh, what works until there is an evidence base for it? Yeah, it's it's really hard, right, because uh, so much of what we do doesn't have evidence one way or the other. Um, and so, you know, if you want to, you want to, say, you know, should I give antibiotic A or should I give antibiotic B, you know, there's not great evidence for differences between antibiotic A and antibiotic B, and you're sort of in the what we call the art of medicine and and um, a lot of practice. Uh, you know, we're lucky in critical care because we have lots of well-done studies and we know some stuff and have studied stuff and have guidance as to what the good treatment is, but even in critical care, a lot of the practice that we do is is sort of uh, the art and and um, hasn't hasn't been studied. So we do some of the some of that um, um, art and non evidence based medicine uh, as part of our practice. But I think you you know for me it's all about going back to the fundamentals and and um, you know doing what we do and uh, taking care of the patients like we take care of critically ill patients. And that is you know doing the things that we've implemented in protocols that we've put into protocols because the data and the studies say that this is the right thing to do for our patients and improve their outcomes. And we, you know, fall back on those and rely on those protocols uh, and not necessarily um, change what we're doing because the patient has a virus that we've never seen before, uh, but continue to do and provide the best care that we can based off of the, the best information that we have and, um, you know, give, provide that care to our patients. So I, I, you know, I've said it many, many, many times, which is that I think we should do what we do and we should do it absolutely as best as we can. And, you know, we shouldn't um, think that if it's if it's a disease that we haven't um, seen before or if it's a, a, a new type of ARDS or, or something like that, that we should um, suddenly think that we should abandon all of the stuff that we've done previously uh, and that we've implemented previously because it was beneficial for our patients. Gotcha. So uh, our knowledge base is evolving as this um, uh, pandemic uh, ensues, and yeah. uh, we seem to know a whole lot more. Well, we think we know a whole lot more now in May compared to March. So based on those uh, the knowledge that we've gained, what would you identify as the current knowledge gaps in our understanding of COVID-19, and what um, research um, agendas need to be uh, addressed in the coming months uh, to improve our care? Right. How much time do you have? Right. I mean, the the knowledge gap is is um, significant, and you know, I think a lot of people have said that um, that 
they're willing to be wrong, that maybe we should treat these patients differently, but that the onus should be on on um, information and data that shows that we should treat these patients differently instead of sort of a, a gestalt, a, a clinical opinion, a, a phenotype that says this is different and therefore we should do it differently. We should have, you know, good studies and robust data. So, I, I mean, clearly there are um, a number of areas that are, that are um, uh, in high need of study to try and figure out um, ways to improve these patients' care. Uh, obviously, a treatment, uh, any, you know, pharmacologic treatment uh, is, is kind of the, the first thing is to, is there anything that we can give these patients that makes them get better faster while we continue to support them? Um, and then I think, you know, people that are, are um, thinking and, and seeing what they think is a different disease uh, and a different ARDS or a different phenotype, uh, I think uh, have some onus on them to provide data that suggests that, that this, is, this is truly the case. Uh, and we've seen in the last couple of weeks some uh, fairly large cohort studies that have suggested that, you know, based off of respiratory physiology, these patients aren't actually different than ARDS patients that were put in the studies that, that uh, were, have been done in the last 20 years to kind of provide us what we think are best practices. So, you know, I think those are, those are, um, those are kind of the starters. And then there's a number of kind of interesting uh, reports from this disease that uh, may suggest that there are components to it, at least, that are different. So is it really a prothrombotic disease, and are they a procoagulant disease, and are there more thromboses uh, in this? And I think we're in the process of getting information about that. And if that's true, uh, is there is there a way to prevent that? Is there a way to treat that? Is there a way to to improve the outcomes of those patients um, with it, anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy or or whatnot? These patients are often uh, a little bit more challenging to sedate uh, and therefore more challenging to do spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials. So, are there methods, you know, implementation type science? Are there methods of doing those that might uh, make it so that the patients tolerate it better or that uh, it's safer for them or that, um, um, you know, it's safer for the nurses and, and better for the patients to do it. Um, and I think there's an area there that, that truly can be studied. So there, there are, you know, there are already so many areas in critical care where we don't have great information and, you know, we, we need information. And um, I think that's, that's true plus some in, in COVID-19. So let's go into this issue of when to intubate these patients. So uh, as you alluded to, there were some who said, you know, we should intubate these patients really early, like, you know, six liters uh, per minute. And the rationale was, you know, the patient may decompensate quickly. We may have to uh, put on our uh, protective garb and there may be a, a necessary yeah. time delay to take care of that patient. And then there's yeah. the opposite of the spectrum where people are saying, you know, we can put these patients on high-flow uh, 91, 92% FiO2, 60 liters per minute, and uh, we should have enough time, but we may not, and we risk the, the chance that we may intubate them late and there may be a code. Um, so yeah. how would you address that uh, clinical question? I mean, so if you were uh, submitting a grant to uh, the NIH or a big institution and say, you know, I'm trying to get to this answer of how I go about um, uh, intubating these patients, what would reasonable definitions of early or late B, or would you use a different terminology? Yeah, I, I think you have to just um, just set some criteria. Um, you know, initially uh, there was 
there was talk about ending them, innovating them if they went above six liters of nasal cannula oxygen. You know, clearly to me that's early because uh, there's a number of oxygen modalities that deliver more than that after after um, uh, above six liters of nasal cannula oxygen. Um, and then, you know, I, I find it interesting because as we get get further and further into this, um, we've we've sort of um, had suggestions and recommendations change from innovate these patients early, you know, when they're only on, you know, more than six liters of nasal cannula because they crash fast and you can't use high flow. And and now, uh, you know, people keep asking me, well, there's this word out there that we should, they have silent hypoxemia and they're doing okay with this and we should probably never intubate them at all. Um, and, um, you know, to me, it seems obviously that's the ultimate late, which is, is you know, not ever doing it. Um, but it seems to me like you know the the one of the arms of that study has to be uh treat the patient like they don't have covid nineteen and they have an acute hypoxic respiratory failure, provide them with whatever oxygen you think they need, and then when they get to a point where they're on hundred percent optiflow and look distressed on that or have oxygen saturations below you know the high eighties um and are are clearly struggling you know you innovate them uh or if you are comfortable using bipap put them on bipap and you know when they're on ninety or hundred percent f i o two on bipap and again you know unable to keep their saturations at an adequate level showing tissue hypo hypo um perfusion or hypo um oxygen to low oxygen delivery of the tissues um you know innovate them at that point and i think you know that's the that's the arm the arm of the study to me that whatever you're going to do needs to be compared against is what is your usual innovation practice uh, in patients who don't have COVID-19. So I mean, so getting to that question, I mean, uh, what I've been fascinated by is how variable clinical practice is amongst the clinicians and intensivists, and how yeah. each intensivist seems to think that they are the usual care, um, and everyone else <laughs> yeah. uh, seems to do things very differently, and most of them are unaware of that fact. So how would you go about uh, getting this usual care arm? Um, would you uh, sample uh, maybe 100, 200, yeah. 300 yeah. Uh, ICU physicians? or I mean, how do you get down to this question of what is usual care? Yeah, yeah, I think you can do it a couple of ways. Um, one is that I think you could just have an arm that you called usual care and let people let people do what they think they've been doing all along. The the difficult part about that is it's hard to describe in a in a trial in a manuscript. Um you're saying you know, do what you do normally, but then it's not set up in a rigorous kind of way where everybody's doing the same thing and you can describe it. But but it's been done and you could do that as usual care. The other thing I think as you sort of alluded to is is that you get a significant number of people in a room uh and you sort of hash out over a few hours you know, what is usual care for you? What is usual care for you? And can we come up with a, a sort of um, definition algorithm that everybody would say, well, that may not be exactly how I do it, but it's close. And that that would be what I would consider to be usual care. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Okay, that's what we're going to use. So I, I think that's the way you come up with sort of usual care. I, I do agree that there's some variability in the way people do these, but I don't think that variability is quite the the variability that's currently being recommended that, you know, I'm I'm not sure that I know of a critical care physician that before COVID would innovate patients on six liters or seven liters of nasal cannula oxygen. Uh, and I also don't think I know of a critical care physician that would say, you know, I'm going to avoid innovation at all costs. And a patient who otherwise would accept it uh, 
because, you know, I'm worried that this disease is different than intubating these patients um, uh, is killing them, you know, just by the mechanism of putting them on the ventilator and supporting their breathing. Gotcha. So what lessons have you learned over the last uh, three or four months um, in managing these patients? Um, you, you know, we talked about, about some of them at the beginning, which is is that, uh, you know, people who aren't used to doing critical care um, want to want to do lots of things, and uh, they they um, think that you know just doing supportive stuff isn't enough, and we should do more than that. Um, you know, and kind of kind of um, you know, and this is where the in the defense of evidence-based medicine comes from, sort of digging the heels in and saying, you know, that's that's great, but we actually are doing things, and we actually know the right things to do, and 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 are some of the right things to do, and we should do those things. And and just because you don't think a ventilation protocol is is doing something, doesn't mean that we're not doing anything for these patients. So you know, that's that's one thing. Um, the the other thing is is that you know you kind of learn. Um, just um, patient characteristics, and uh, you know these these patients have some unique characteristics. Um, they they um, our patients at least have um, what I call COVID spells, where they just have these spells that are that are um, um, really huge shunts where they are markedly hypoxic, and it doesn't appear to be to matter you know how much oxygen I put them on, they're going to be hypoxic for a little while. Uh, and we've learned that you know that's part of this and. Do what we can to help them, but but also recognize that that um, um, you know that's part of this disease process. Um, and uh, I think you know you asked about it, but I think we still have a lot to learn about different aspects of this disease, whether it be you know treating the antiviral stuff or uh, host response stuff or coagulation area, uh, and learning just kind of what we can from from data. You know this should be driven by by science and driven by data and driven by studies if we're able to do them uh, to help help us understand what the best way to care for these patients and how to how to you know give the best care that we possibly can for our patients. Gotcha. And then I wanted to ask you about splitters and lumpers because <laughs> it seems as though there's some patients who are quite I mean yeah. there's some clinicians who are quite happy to say you know what this is all part of the ARDS uh, uh, phenotype, and then there's others who are saying, you know, um, this is different, this is different, and um, each strategy has its benefits, and I guess you would probably argue that lumping is important initially when encountering something unknown like COVID-19, ARDS, and then later we'd split, and if that's the case, why would you uh, say the splitters need to switch over to being a lumper? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I love the concept of splitting and the ultimate splitting, I think, is personalized medicine where you figure out, you know, the exact differences between this patient and that patient, um, even though they may look somewhat similar or have a similar disease process or, you know, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've based off the definition we've known all along that ARDS isn't really a separate disease process. It's sort of a syndrome that many diseases can, can result in. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me that there could be different phenotypes and different, um, different, um, you know, clinical, clinical types of ARDS. Uh, I do think that, um, that the splitters, um, are, are, um, are, have a little bit of an onus on them to, show that splitting makes a difference and that, you know, uh, figuring out different phenotypes uh, results in different treatments 
and results in those different treatments being uh, um, resulting in different outcomes. Um, because uh, you know, if you can tell me there's different phenotypes, but then can't can't explain to me or can't show me that that means they should be treated differently, then um, you know I buy that there could be a an endothelial phenotype and an epithelial phenotype or a vascular phenotype. But if we can't come up with different ways to treat them uh, in order to to make it so that that splitting them like that and, and figuring out what their phenotype is results in a differential treatment that results in a differential outcome, then, um, you know, we're just as good lumping and doing doing what we know to do in, in all of them and providing that care to all of them. So you're advocating for utility in when you decide to split? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think there's there's some merit in splitting, and I think the more we learn about the phenotypes and and what's in them, I think the the better the chance that we have of coming up with specific treatments and understanding when to use those treatments and and doing what's best for our patients. But I I think um, I think we need those data, and I think we need that evidence that says you know this patient is this phenotype, and therefore I should do X. This patient is a different phenotype, and therefore I should do Y. Um, and you know, learn learn that. So, got you. And then, in, in the most uh, medical students, uh, residents, fellows, uh, clinicians are familiar with the so-called hierarchy of an evidence base, and uh, they talk about yeah. the fact that you move from case reports to uh, retrospective uh, cohorts yeah. to prospective, and eventually yeah. randomized trials. So. Um, from my understanding of what you're telling me, um, earlier on we had a lot of anecdotal reports, and that isn't uh, good enough to change practice. And uh, and we are currently in the process of collecting retrospective data um, soon, uh, as well as uh, prospective data. And the hope is that we get randomized trials. The big problem with a lot of these studies is bias, and and maybe you could just comment on uh, why it's so important that we get to a randomized trial rather than use observational uh, data? And uh, what threshold we should be using to say, you know what, we've got enough evidence, we shouldn't waste more resources here, let's go tackle another question. Yeah, yeah. The the easiest one of those is the anecdotes, right? The the case series, the case reports. Uh, and lots of people um, in my institution uh, kind of fixated on this pre-publication uh, Chinese case report of 20 patients that got TOSI and, you know, 19 of them did well, or the, those data. Um, and, you know, what I kept reiterating to them is, is that if you give 20 patients TOSI and they all do poorly, there's not a journal out there that publishes that case report. Um, because in these pandemic times, journals aren't trying to find things that didn't work. They're trying to publish things that may have worked. And so there's there's obviously issues because uh, it's a little anecdotal, but there's also a huge publication bias in the fact that if your anecdote is and your experience is that something didn't work or it hurt patients, uh, in general, those are way harder to get published. So that's kind of the anecdote stuff. The the observational um, uh, kind of cohort stuff um, uh, often has biases that even though we try and adjust for them, um, there's unhidden, there's hidden biases. And so, you know, for example, in a disease that people are claiming is an entirely new disease and that we've never seen before, to think that we understand all of the variables that go into predicting outcomes and that we should be adjusting for, um, we, 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 there have to be some that we just wouldn't know because we've never seen this disease before. Um, and so, um, even if it's, if it's regular ARDS, you know, we find out new information all the time about different 
different aspects of ARDS that are um, prognostic or predictive, and um, um, you know we didn't adjust for those in in the past. And so you know there's always unmeasured confounders, and that's actually the the strength of randomization is is that randomization randomizes those unmeasured confounders, measured too, but unmeasured confounders that we're unable to adjust for uh, into both arms so that, uh, assuming randomization works, that both arms are similar uh, and these biases are minimized. Gotcha. Um, so how would we go about uh, deciding uh, whether or not to refute or confirm a specific therapy with the observational uh, data yeah, for me, if you can do a randomized trial, that's what I do. I'm a trialist. Uh, you know, I think that's where the that's where the money is, and I think that's the way to to generate the highest level of evidence. But sometimes you can't do that. So sometimes you have to simulate a randomized trial, or you have to do what's called these target trials, where you essentially try and try and uh, simulate a randomized trial within the database. Uh, and if you're not able to do that, then the, then we do the best we can with adjustments and trying to find confounders and adjust for confounders, do some propensity score adjustments. Uh, and those sorts of those sorts of adjustments uh, of observational data, and you know, uh, if you have multiple pieces of observational data that all suggest the same thing, um, and you know, the a similar signal in the same uh, pop in the same disease states and populations, then you know that increases the level of that evidence and suggests that that uh, you know maybe there's something real there, and and maybe that's that's a real signal. Um, it's it's a lower level of evidence when you just have one uh, one trial or one study that's uh, found that uh, observation and and um, you know those those replication I think in other data sets other uh, cohorts uh, with similar or the same disease goes a long way in in um, kind of increasing the strength of that evidence. Yeah, definitely the importance of replicating data. Um, there's been yeah. a pretty unique uh, occurrence in the last few months uh, that I've noticed where um, researchers or clinicians are publishing data um, and they're reporting it as a as pre-publication, but not even peer-reviewed. But when you yeah. see the paper on the internet, it looks like something that's already published. And um, maybe you could comment on that because. Uh, for all intents and purposes, to the unsuspecting uh, reader, they would think that this was a published study that underwent uh, proper peer review. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it seems as though peer review has gone out the window um, of, yeah. for some issues. Yeah, it's really tough because, you know, obviously there's importance in trying to get good data out quickly um, so that people can, you know, use those data to better treat the patients that we're seeing, and we're seeing lots of them. Um, and so you want to get stuff out quickly, um, but doing it by – Putting it out there before it's peer reviewed often um, leads to big biases and leads to you know not having the benefit of uh, kind of an external maybe a little bit uh, more open minded uh, person looking at it and saying well what about this have you thought about this have you thought about that you know couldn't this be part of that that reason that you found that outcome um, and those sorts of things and so um, these these preprint servers uh, are good in the fact that they allow data to get out there quickly. Um, but I think people just need to remember that it's not peer-reviewed data um, and that, that you know, many, many, many studies, manuscripts, data um, uh, change significantly in the peer review process because the peer reviewers um, are thoughtful, they're smart, and they, they come up with questions that make you think, oh, maybe 
maybe I need to do this analysis to see if that's what's happening, or maybe that is one of the un, un, previously unknown biases, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I, um, I look at some of those preprints, and I always take them with a grain of salt because uh, I do think the peer review process is really good for science and, and good for kind of increasing the, the rigor of the results in the studies. Gotcha. So, um, Todd, you've been very generous with your time, and uh, I'm sure our audience appreciates that. Uh, we're drawing to the end of this podcast, and I want to give you the opportunity to leave our audience with any key messages, um, as well as to uh, comment on any uh, topics that we didn't have the opportunity to cover uh, thus far. Yeah, no, we covered a lot. I'm not sure there's there's anything I need there. I, you know, I think my lasting message, I say this to the residents, is, you know, um, you know, I said it earlier, do what we do and do it well. So, you know, kind of rest on our laurels and, and the, the practices that we've implemented because the data say these are the right things to do for our patients. And let's keep doing those for even our COVID patients. And, and uh, I think, you know, that's the, the best thing we can do to get the best outcomes. Okay, and thank you very much uh, for taking care of all these patients and for mentoring yeah. um, all, all your folks. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for your time. A big thank you to Dr. Rice, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society. 